Welcome to The Lawyer's Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover, and this is episode 214 of The Lawyer's Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Alice Armitage about how law schools can teach innovation. Today's podcast is brought to you by Podium, Gusto, and Case Text. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. It's just me today. Aaron went on a Disney cruise in the sun last week, and as revenge on him for missing two Minnesota snowstorms, he has a head cold. So it's just me. Today, I want to give some shout outs to Stephanie. Stephanie Everett is our community director, and she is the one who created and teaches the Lawyerist Lab program for us. And she's done an amazing job. She just told us as I'm recording this that she is polishing up the entire rest of the year's curriculum. So she's done producing the entire thing. It's been great so far. She's gotten great feedback. And I just wanted to share with you one of the great things that lab members have said about her. She just had a call recently with one who called her a business therapist, which is kind of a nice way to talk about the job that she does. She's you could call her a coach or a trainer. I like to call her like a personal trainer for your law firm. But it's really nice to hear the kind of feedback from lawyers who are trying to build the kinds of practices that they want to have and just need someone to hold them accountable and help. And that's what Stephanie has done an amazing job doing in putting together lab. And even better, that lab member said she can already see how valuable the lab is for her and her business. So that's awesome. Stephanie, you rock. Just wanted to give a shout out for that. Obviously, if you want to know more about the lab, you can learn more on lawyerist.com slash lab, or you can just go to the community nav menu item. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Jake Heller from Case Text, and then my conversation with Alice. Hey, I'm Jake Heller. I am the CEO and co-founder of Case Text. We are a legal research company that uses artificial intelligence to help you find the best cases and other authorities fast and easily. Hey, Jake, welcome back to the podcast. And today we want to talk about some tips for getting better prices from traditional legal research providers if you're not quite ready for case text yet. So what are some of the tips that you've got for doing that? Happy to share them. By way of background, by being in this industry, we've come across a lot of different information about how much people are paying with the traditional legacy legal research providers. And one thing that shocked us was that even for pretty similar legal research packages, you might be looking at costs that vary between $1,200 a month per attorney at the firm, all the way up to $14,000 per attorney at the firm. (laughs) And that kind of variance, you know, and this happens because a lot of these contracts are secret, right? They they, they don't publish their prices. They don't publish their prices and and they make you sign an NDA. And I think that while that is being used right now to make sure that prices stay relatively high, there are a lot of ways to get around these high prices if you're not quite ready to look at other options. Yeah, very cool. So there's kind of three quick tips on that. One, you can negotiate. We're all lawyers. We went to law school. We negotiate settlements. We negotiate fees with our clients. 
we probably negotiate with our spouse more than we should. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so you can use that same skill to bring down the prices. And I would say the number one piece of advice I have while negotiating is have leverage. Right. If one of these traditional research companies thinks that you need them, then they can charge you whatever, you know, and, and they'll think you'll have to pay it. But if you make it seem as though you don't need them, you can go to an alternative, you can restrict the amount of content, you don't even use them that much, then they'll be willing to come to the table. And use the fact that you are dealing with an individual salesperson to your benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And get the best price you can. So that's tip number one. Tip number two is to consider limiting the scope of the coverage of your research contract. So what we've heard out in the market is that folks who tend to have a more restricted coverage, for example, just the cases in their state or just the cases in their state and the federal courts tend to pay less than your $14,000 contract that includes treatises and, and a lot of other bells and whistles. Yeah. It, it comes with a risk though, and that risk is twofold. A, if you click on something outside of your contract, you might get a surprise bill at the end for $1,500 or more, and you might be left thinking, why didn't I just you know, get more content to begin with? And B, if you restrict the amount of content you have, you may actually be putting yourself at a disadvantage compared to opposing counsel. If you're up against lawyers from firms of all sizes or the government, they may able, or, or in fact, in front of right, a judge that may have you know, a full database to, to one of these research providers, they may have arguments based on analogies to other precedent or to other sources that you aren't going to be able to have access to, and that may put you at a disadvantage. So that's something to think about. But for many practices, it's okay to restrict the amount of coverage, and you'll get by just fine. Tip number three is consider actually making a switch. Today, more than ever, there are alternatives that vary in terms of pricing and coverage and capabilities. I'm biased. I'm the CEO of Kstacks, <laughs> and I think that our $65 a month, you know, and even, even less if you're a lawyer's member with a special offer, right? I think that's a better deal. It gets you all cases, all statutes, all regulations, articles, briefs, et cetera. But there are other options, too. Consider checking out Casemaker or Fastcase, especially if it comes free with the bar, right? And these options will be transparent about their pricing, transparent about what they cover, and it may not be for everybody, uh, especially if you need Lexis or Westlaw specific bells and whistles, but they, they might be for you. And so, you know, it might be time if you're looking to save money to, to check out alternatives. So if you want a great deal on Case Text, you can visit casetext.com slash lawyerist and you'll get a 14-day free trial and 15% off. We'll throw that link in the show notes as well. Jake, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Thanks for taking the time, Sam. I'm Alice Armitage. I'm a professor at UC Hastings Law School in San Francisco, and I'm also the director of applied innovation here at Hastings. Alice, thanks so much for being on our podcast today. What does it mean? <laughs> what does that title mean? What is it that you end up doing from your day-to-day -day work? Well, I think it's actually hard to define, which is mm -hmm. great because it allows me to do a lot of different things in the school and in setting up new programs and initiatives for our students. We're in San Francisco, so everybody kind of breathes innovation. It seemed like something that would be a benefit that we would have and be able to help our law students to utilize in their future careers and as well as making our law school have more 
interesting and exciting programs. So like what are some of the programs that you've started or that you oversee at Hastings? So I was hired initially to run the Startup Legal Garage, which has been around since oh, 2011. It's an innovative program because unlike a clinic in which the professors are really the lawyer on each of the legal matters that often real-world clients are bringing in, but the students are working for the professor. And mm-hmm. the ABA limits those classes to eight to 10 students. But what we've done at the Startup Legal Garage is to try to create a different experience for the students. So they're working with real live clients. These are early stage startups in any industry that have a tech component to their business. But the person supervising the legal work is a practicing attorney. So what that means is it's allowed us to scale this program. So in any given year, and the program runs for a year, in any given year, we will have 50 to 60 students students that I, uh, who are taking a class, a doctrinal class, I'm not teaching that. I'm creating fieldwork projects for them. Gotcha. So is Startup Legal Garage something that we might think about as like an incubator? No. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> we, uh, But we do have an incubator on campus. That's through LexLab. LexLab is an initiative we started just this year to focus on legal technology startups and initiatives here at school in order not only to help the legal tech community in general, but also to introduce our students to it. Mm -hmm. And so we have four companies that are actually working on campus and they come to events that we've created. They come to classes that I'm teaching to learn some of the the concepts that the students are learning. The entrepreneurs are there too, which has turned out to be a fascinating byplay of conversations and and, uh, perspectives on issues that they're both working on. So And that's one of the things as a director of applied innovation that I get to do is sort of go off the beaten path of traditional law school and do new kinds of things. These sound like very complimentary programs, right? Like Startup Legal Garage is about exposing students to innovators and helping them understand how to represent innovators. LexLab, it sounds like, is about asking law students to do some innovation on their own in partnership with legal tech startups. Am I sort of right there? It's actually a really good thing for the startups in a sense. There are startups that start in the startup legal garage. The legal work being done there is primarily setting up companies and doing all the very early legal work. Mm -hmm. And at that point, usually too early to be in the Lex Lab where we're trying to, in our program, help them get to the market. What we're offering them is all of our contacts and resources out in the legal profession that legal tech startups find very difficult to break into. But they have to be a little bit farther along. So several of our companies have started in the startup legal garage and then have moved over to LexLab. For the students, the students are actually doing legal work for those startups. Again, all those very basic needs that a startup has. In LexLab, it's a more interdisciplinary thing in which those students sometimes work for the startups as paid interns, not doing Mm -hmm. legal, but doing business sorts of all the little tasks that a startup needs. In my opinion, that will make them better lawyers because they will have seen how entrepreneurs think, how they look at risk, how they assess the decisions that have to be made. That all turns out to be very different from how a lawyer would make those decisions. Yeah. And so I'm kind of curious in general where you see this is how you guys are approaching trying to teach innovation, expose law students to innovation and, and new ideas and new ways of solving problems. Do you have a feel for what other law schools out there are doing? I mean, I know some are like, we need to teach students how to use law practice management software, but that's not teaching innovation. That's just like teaching people how to do legal research. It's not it's not changing thinking. Is there more like what else is going on out in the law school academic space <laughs> as far as teaching students about technology and innovation? Well, you know, there, there are certain schools that have been 
very involved for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them that comes to mind is Michigan State. Uh, Dan Katz and Dan Lynn over there. Dan Katz is now at Chicago, Kent. And Dan is teaching at Northwestern. Dan's are focused often on computational law and more on the, they both have a technology background. So they will teach coding sometimes or how to use that kind of thinking to deliver legal services. And they really, in many ways, were at the forefront of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Suffolk Law School is another one doing really For interesting sure. things. They have a concentration in law and technology. Vanderbilt, I know you had Cat Moon on yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they're doing great things. But I think in many ways that the law schools are now, like law firms, starting to talk about innovation, but they're actually, other than the ones I mentioned, very few really doing it. That's my sense. It's a thing you put on like the firm resume or the law school page. You know, we do these things and they're innovative, whether or not you actually do those things or teach them effectively or whatever. Yeah. And honestly, I I think that it's hard to know whether we're teaching them effectively, but even those of us that are doing it, it's the market is changing so rapidly and the technology is changing. And, you know, when I, I've been creating syllabuses for the classes I teach and I am, I don't have a textbook. It's, I'm creating them out of whole cloth, you know, looking for things that students can read or can watch. I do a lot of videos that they watch because the information is changing. It's cutting edge things going on in the legal tech space, for instance. And so I can't give them a textbook. And I actually, you know, I'm trying to teach them things that aren't traditionally taught in law school. So it's not something that a lot of people have wanted to do today. I hope that changes. Yeah, I was just having a conversation with somebody who his girlfriend was considering going to law school. And I was like, you know, it's hard to recommend that right now. Not for the reasons that we talked about, you know, in the aftermath of the the market crash in 2008 or so. The reason now is there is such dramatic change happening in the legal market, as in all markets. And I'm not sure that there are many law schools that are teaching law students and preparing them for the jobs that they are going to be having or the companies or firms that they're going to be starting or working for. And I realize change is slow and, and maybe I'm jumping the gun on that a little bit. But I that's what worries me is, is how do you get students ready for the market they're going to to be entering, you know, we've named what four or five law schools that are making a real try at that. I mean, what does that look like to you? What what does the lawyer of the next five to 10, 15 years need to look like when they graduate? Well, so a law school right now is focused, you know, for three years, you're focused on doctrinal substantive law or, mm-hmm. or and so it's often called learning to think like a lawyer. And <laughs> I do, uh, we all went through that, those of us that went to law school, and it's very intense, especially the first year. I do think there's a value to that. It is almost like a mental boot camp where they break down all the ways that you've thought about things before and then build you back sure. up to, yeah. to, to look at things. So I see a value to that, but I don't think that takes more than a year. And I think that what law schools ought to do to make their students practice ready is to then allow them for the next two years or year and a half to start learning the practical skills. Now, honestly, so law schools, if you notice who I mentioned is, you know, there are some of the top 20 law schools are in that list, but a lot of the people are, who are innovating are are not very high up in the U.S. news and world rankings. Right. And I think that's, that's because, one, we have a different student base. So, you know, I and I come I went to Yale. I loved law school, but it was a purely intellectual exercise. And I got out and, you know, somebody asked me to write a contract and I was like, 
What? No, I write. Mm-hmm. I can write you what ought to be in a contract, but write contract language? I have a clue. Right? <laughs> and and that was, you know, and, and law firms that hired you knew that, and they planned that over the next, you know, two or three years, as you practice, you would learn all those skills. But that has changed. Clients don't want to pay for that. Law firms really are hiring fewer people right out of law school. Mm-hmm. They want laterals who have figured out somewhere else. And so I think that those of us who are, you know, not going to automatically get our students jobs have had to think about, well, how do we get them jobs? And I think that getting jobs means that they have to be practice ready, that law schools have to embrace the fact that this is no longer just an intellectual three-year degree, that it has to have an aspect of it that is experiential and performative. I've been thinking about that too, though. Is the idea of preparing students for jobs, though, when I when I listen to, you know, Dan Katz or Richard Susskind or anyone who's a sort of a thought leader in legal education and innovation talk about the kinds of jobs that we need to be preparing lawyers for, those jobs aren't out there, right? A legal project manager at a small firm isn't a job that you can apply for at more than a handful of law firms in the country. Is it preparing them for jobs or preparing them to just say, screw it, I'm going to start my own thing? So, no, I don't look at it that way. I see it as preparing them to think differently. So as the practice and delivery of law services changes due to technology, that students have the ability to be flexible, to think about what their role is differently. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of interesting, I was reading an interesting article today um, by Ray Strom about how metrics can change the way that lawyers will, what their jobs will be and uh, what sorts of things will be measured uh, and talking about outcomes and performance and so forth. And I think that's a whole, you know, that's not something, we're a profession that is very tied to credentials and big names and, mm-hmm. you know, relying on our, our sort of laurels in that sense. And metrics could change all of that um, in many ways. Maybe the way Moneyball changed uh, baseball. This article pointed that out as well. So I, I just think that we, re- you're right, we really don't know where it's going. But in order to have people prepared for that, to be able to accept change, I think we have to help them to think, to have other skills, to have inter- interdisciplinary skills so they understand where their clients are coming from. Uh, this comes back to some of the things Kat talked about, human-centered design and understanding, you know, what your client is looking for and can best be served by, you know, and maybe you don't deliver your legal services through a hundred page memo that you've had four mm-hmm. people working on for right. two weeks, but you create a heat map that they have on their laptop. So, you know, I think I want my students to be able to understand how to think differently than a lawyer. I want them to be able to think like a lawyer, but at the end of the day, I want them to know what that is and then to have other mindsets and other skills that they can pull from to create better services and better client experience for the people they work with. So we already need to take a break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be back in a minute to talk a little bit more about what that might look like. We'll be back. Legal research is too expensive, hard to use, and time-consuming. It doesn't have to be. With Case Text, you can save $2,000 and 210 hours on legal research this year. Case Text has unique artificial intelligence technology that does a lot of the research for you. Just drag and drop a complaint or brief, and you'll quickly find cases on the same facts, legal issues, and jurisdiction. Casetext is fast, well-designed, and comprehensive, and it's very affordable. Go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to get Casetext for $55 a month. Casetext is modern legal research trusted by over 3,000 small firms and 40 firms in the AmLaw 200. Go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to get started. 
If you have a small business or know someone who does, you probably know that small business owners wear a lot of hats, and some of those hats are totally great, but some, like filing taxes and running payroll, for example, are not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR easy for small businesses. Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and expert HR support all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Those old-school, clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work. But Gusto is, so let them wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do. Listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com lawyerist. That's gusto.com lawyerist. In business, reputation is everything. And while online reviews can make or break you, your best clients probably aren't showing up. And that's too bad, because if they did, you'd have more clients, more referrals, and be the top-rated law firm in your area. If you're tired of waiting for reviews to trickle in, you have a choice. Either keep waiting or get proactive with Podium. Podium helps you get more reviews on the sites that matter most. Use their messaging platform to give friendly reminders while sending clients straight to the review sites that you care about the most. With Podium's built-in analytics, you can set goals, monitor progress, and incentivize your team to reach out to more clients. Become the number one choice online. Visit podium.com slash lawyerist to save 10% when you start. That's podium.com slash lawyerist to get started and save 10%. Okay, we're back. So Alice, we've been talking about kind of the idea of practice ready and what might need to change and how that prepares students to practice. What kinds of changes would you like to see if you could wave your magic wand? What kinds of changes would you like to see every law school making in the way they prepare students? Well, it, it's a little bit bigger than just law school. So I, <laughs> unfortunately, sure. there's, there's so much about the state bars and the ABA that keep us doing mm-hmm. what we do. But if I could make, change all of it with my magic wand, I would like law school to look a little bit more maybe like medical school where there is a year or year and a half of doctrinal skills after which you take, you know, they take boards, but we would take the bar exam that tests on those sorts of things. And then the remainder of law school would be about learning skills that are going to actually be used in day-to-day practice and also working under someone like a doctor at a hospital. You'd be working with practicing attorneys for almost, they do this in in England where you, you you apprentice for a period of time. And perhaps it has to be a specialty, perhaps no longer the bar, the lawyers will be certified in general to do anything. Anything, but it will be more like you become a board specialist in orthopedics or something. You know, you'd be a board specialist in environmental law. Although I suspect that when it comes to what those students would actually be doing during their apprenticeship, I suspect that you don't think they ought to be doing it in traditional ways, that you should they should be learning new approaches or at least some slightly different approaches to how they go about serving clients. Well, exactly. I mean, that's those are the kinds of courses I teach. So <laughs> yeah, that's, I want to know more about that. Keep teaching. <laughs> <laughs> so I teach a course in how to build your own legal tech startup. And that's not because I necessarily think my students want to be entrepreneurs. But many of them who, you know, live in, we live in San Francisco, they want to stay in, this, in the Bay Area, will work with startup companies. And the purpose of this course is to help them understand how their clients may think by making them actually think like an entrepreneur. So I teach them design thinking skills. We go through the lean startup method and agile development and mindsets, you know, how growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, but through the lens of building a legal tech startup. So 
so they actually have to do elevator pitches, and then they do the Amazon future press release that looks backward at all the obstacles that you came over, and they do prototypes, and they have to go out and talk to real users of what their concept, they work in teams to actually come up with an idea, they go out and test it with users, come back, iterate reprototype. And ultimately, the class doesn't have a, an exam at the end. It has a pitch competition that legal tech entrepreneurs and investors listen to and give them feedback on. So it is teaching them not only those different interdisciplinary skills, but actually a lot of communication skills. Mm-hmm. This is something I didn't expect when I started it. But the truth is in law school, I mean, or as a lawyer, we're all going to be talking all the time. But in law school, all you get usually in that area to practice on is moot court. And my students do not want to be litigators. They're all going to be (laughs) corporate transactional lawyers. And there is no kind of training for that. So this makes the class, the class stands up, each one of them does these kind of skills. Some of them find it quite hard. It's, It's interesting. And then when you're pitching, you're standing up in front of an unknown audience. It's not really different than being in court, but it is, you know, it is what you will do as a lawyer, even if you're in a in a room meeting with, you know, negotiating a, a deal. So it's good training. Do you think that idea translates to lawyers who will go to work for firms that do estate planning or family law? I think that that kind of communication could be taught through the lens of any discipline. And honestly, if I, again, back to my law, law school, I think starting even when they're learning to think like a lawyer, there could be an experiential part or a communications part of all of that. So I do think that no matter what's being taught doctrinally, there should be some sort of a practice element. I mean, that that's one of my concerns is like most law schools feel like they're teaching case law and litigation skills, and they're trying to get students jobs, which means maybe small firms, but mostly medium and large firms, when the majority of firms in the country are, you know, one to 15 lawyers, and the majority of firms in the country are not doing corporate law, um, but they're doing consumer law, they're doing estate planning, they're doing personal injury, criminal defense, family law, those kinds of things. And I feel like, you know, I wonder, like, are law schools even on the same page as the legal market? I'm not, and I'm not sure about that. Well, they didn't have to be in the past, again, because the law firms took it, even the small ones, Mm -hmm. they were going to, you know, you would take a lot of classes and wills in the States, but you wouldn't know how to draw up a will until you watched it being done for a year two. So I, I think that you're you're right that we are no longer training our students to be out to be able to go out or maybe we never were training our students to go out and actually start practicing, but that we have to take on that role. And so that brings me back to this idea that I think students were going to, should begin to specialize. I don't think it's, you know, the idea used to be, oh, you, all you have to do is think like a lawyer and then you can do any kind of law. Well, the world is too complicated. I don't think that that makes sense. Right. And, and why should you know everything about criminal procedure when, in fact, you are going to go be in a, you know, a small town lawyer that just <laughs> does uh, family law, right? You know, it's not, it, it, it's something you take for the bar, you learn for the bar and you forget. That's a waste of time um, and effort, frankly. Do you think it's possible to reframe thinking like a lawyer? I mean, in my mind, thinking like a lawyer, as I was trained and, and as you were trained, is mostly about how to solve legal problems by approaching them in a way that you look for, you spot the issues and you walk through the elements of the claim and you make your argument, look for case law, et cetera. My vision, I think, would be more like you start from maybe we use design thinking as the model, maybe we call it something else, but legal problem solving, I think, should look 
beyond the actual legal issues into what is the actual problem that this person or company has. And then you get at more creative answers like um, I had counterattacks on, I had Natalie Warsfold on recently to talk about her firm was trying to have better conversations with uh, in-house counsel about the risks and benefits of various litigation strategies in tax controversies. And they're up in Canada, but eventually they just had to build their own algorithm and they wound up spinning it into its own software product because they didn't know how to answer that question in any other way. Or um, Aaron Levine, who built Hello Divorce out in California to help people get divorced in a way that was different than traditional attorney-client relationship by, you know, offering a whole bunch of assisted DIY stuff, um, offering a lawyer when you need it, and really reducing the burden of the whole thing. Those feel like the kind of creative problem solvings that ought to be what thinking like a lawyer looks like, but is so rare. Well, totally. And I, you know, I don't know how much time you need to understand to understand what it is to be a lawyer and to be able to think critically like a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I think it doesn't have to be taught through cases. It's just that we've never had another method since Langdell at Harvard, (laughs) you know, figured that out in the 1890s or whatever. Um, And that could certainly be retaught. That will take a while. But I do think that if, if we still take, you know, the case analysis for a small period of time and then add on it these other ways of thinking. Again, you know, so all that you talked about, about looking, how do you deliver something that's best for the client, where you understand the client and the context that they work in and the sorts of way they think about legal issues. So for instance, why do an NDA, if nobody, everybody I know at all the startups, we all sign NDAs when we walk in the door. (laughs) But the truth is, are they ever enforced? Has anybody ever lost money that way? Is there, why did some lawyers have to spend, why did they spend all the money for some lawyers to write up this three, four page thing when in fact there's no real business benefit to that? So, but that would be the sort of thing that metrics maybe would, would show. So we, you know, they spent 20 hours drawing this up and, you know, business meetings and it costs the business $10,000 and there's never been a lawsuit based on right. any one of those NDAs. <laughs> it's a question the premise every time, right? Exactly. And, and so I don't know what, you know, what metrics will show in the long run, but I do think that we have to get, that's what I'm trying to give our students for the second two years is a layering on top of those critical thinking like a lawyer skills so that they don't think that's the only way to solve a problem. Maybe you need that if you're going to be a lawyer, but then you have to understand how everybody else is approaching the problem. Because I agree with you. I just think that those are critical skills. When uh, Will Hornsby and I had a conversation about navigating the ethics rules when you're trying to do innovative things in a legal tech startup Mm -hmm. or in law practice, uh, we, we got off on a tangent, which I think was a good one, about what rules or what institutional things would need to change. You uh, alluded to some things about state and federal and state bars and the ABA that make law schools be the way they are and approach uh, education in the way they do. What rules would you change? Well, I think that something that California has actually created a task force about, and they're supposed to give a report at the end of 2019, I think, actually, about whether legal fees can be split with non-lawyers, that awful word, but with people who are not lawyers. If that one rule changed in a state, and every state, you know, is different, but that's essentially the rule across the country, that would open up the way law could be practiced so that we could have technologists. So that would you, that would flow back down to the way law schools educate. Of course, 
because oh, that cool. would change. That would force the practice to change mm-hmm. dramatically. You know, honestly, this is a. There's so many elements to this fight because law schools are certainly influenced by where their students will work, but they're also lawyers and academics are as sort of tradition bound, if not more so, than big law firm partners. And so, it's breaking down the thinking that has that we've all been taught in and it's that's very difficult but i so i think that if a big rule change came down from the state bars that that would force people to start looking at things differently you know there's a law firms like atrium that uh, actually a hastings grad was a co-founder of uh, augie rakow that it created a technology firm first and then a legal firm right. that's separate but it has some contractual relationship and so and augie said something really interesting he sees the problem in big law firms being that that equity partners when they retire have no secondary market to sell their equity so they have no ongoing or long-term interest in the firm's profitability so it's much more like you know take it and run whereas if there was a secondary market for equity shares that would hmm. change the way people thought and there might be more R&D and might be more open to other ways of doing business if someone at another law school is interested in here's this and is like wow I want to bring some of that learning to my law school how would you advise them to get started well i i think the great thing about the legal tech community in general and definitely the legal tech focused professors at law schools were all very willing to share and to talk about what we've done and how we've done it we've each of the law schools and the people i've mentioned have gone at it differently but everybody has been so willing to talk to me when i was setting up what we're doing here uh, and i am certainly willing to talk to anybody and and you know, see what works because every you know law schools are different, and things that will work for me don't work at other places. Mm-hmm. But we all have thoughts about how it, the world ought to change. I have one more thing to say about yeah, law yeah. schools that I just want to throw out there. I think that there should be a JD track, which is for people who want to go out and practice law, and a PhD track for those who want to end up being Supreme Court justices or professors or whatever that. You know, they have that in in lots of other disciplines. You know, you can get a PhD in some of the business disciplines or in medical disciplines, or you can go get something to go out in the workplace. And I think we need to think about doing that ourselves. I think that's an interesting idea. I guess an LLM is different than that, right? An LLM is more, uh, it's not the same as a PhD in law, right? No. So an LLM is often these days foreign students who want to come here and then practice in the United States, or it's for a specific specialty like NYU's tax LLM. So somebody going in for a deeper dive, but for the purpose of going out and practicing, I can't think of a professor that I know that has an LLM as part of their progression into becoming an academic. I mean, ungeneralizing the legal degree is kind of a theme in what we've been talking about here. You are interested in after the the sort of the first year uh, brain rearranging of thinking like a lawyer, right. you want people to be able to right. to specialize in various subject areas or skills or disciplines. And then you want people to be able to go on and be the sort of the legal eggheads that are able to think about the law and policy terms and make those bigger decisions if they want to go and, and be a judge or a legislator or something. I, that's interesting. I haven't really, I don't think I've had time to fully think through the implications of what that might look like in the legal market. Um, what are some of the advantages you think that would have? Well, I I think that that would give a track for people who do not worry about finding a job, who don't have to worry about finding a job, or who don't want to actually practice but want to think the big thoughts. And and law used to be a more intellectual profession, so Mm -hmm. I'm told, um, (laughs) that, you know, that was 
lots of people sitting around a table talking about all the great things that they were doing, mostly in litigation, right? mostly in, in courthouses. But I think there's still people that want to do that. I think that there are big cases that go that way. So you might practice in a certain way. But most of, a lot of time people want to be professors or they want to be, you know, they'd like to be a judge somewhere, if not a Supreme Court justice. And so I'm not sure that they have to practice law right. to get that. Or get the education that goes with practicing law, right? I mean, you know, we exactly we talk to a lot of law firm founders who have to learn over time that the job that they need to be doing is leading a company, not doing legal work, even though all of their training is doing legal work. And so maybe there's a track for being a law firm CEO or something like that. Exactly. And I think there ought to be ways for people to come back in. You know, you might go out and practice a certain way and sure. then you want to, oh, no, I think I really want to, you know, I want to do the management of the law firm and that you would come back in, into that. But so I think we, in general, we just have to be much more flexible about what it is that law school means. Mm-hmm. And I think that it may be that, you know, students will be able to figure that out ahead of time. They've never had to do that. So and we've, law schools have never had to figure that, help them figure that out. So I think that that will take some rethinking also of what law schools bring to the table. And I don't think that it, it should be the rankings. You know, I think the rankings lead right. students often to make the wrong decisions. You know, I, I tend to bounce back and forth between sort of exuberant optimism about the future for law and access to justice and, and what practice in the market is going to look like and just frustrated pessimism. When I see things like Tennessee just decided it wants to regulate online legal software companies by saying that they're practicing law if they provide legal forms, which is just asinine. But um, wow. when you when you look at where legal education is now and, and where it sits in, in the world of law, and you look forward 5, 10, 15 years, what gives you reason for exuberant optimism? We'll skip the pessimism. We've been talking about that. <laughs> Well, I actually think that there are pressures in the market. This is going to be a market-driven change, I believe. And whether it's market-driven at the law school level in which we're thinking about how do we get the best students, what can we offer students that they will choose to come to us Mm -hmm. other than just you know, going down the rankings and taking it blindly, or it's the markets that's coming, the clients that are pushing the law firms to change. And then the law firms then saying, okay, well, if we're going to have to change, we're looking for different skills because we aren't going to train anybody. We need somebody that's going to be able to hit the ground running and think about delivering uh, the legal services that the client actually wants. That can be a partner with the client. That is not a a phrase I ever heard when I was in law Mm -hmm. school or even really when practicing law. But that's what you hear all the time. I want to be able to pick up the phone and have a lawyer talk to me for, you know, half an hour while we brainstorm how to deal with something. I don't want a memo. You mm-hmm. know, I don't I want them to understand the context in which my legal decision is being made. So I think that all those things will filter down and will force law schools to change. And I think by 10 years, five years, maybe too soon, but by 10 years, uh, you're going to see much, much more of that. You live in the land of disruption. Do you think 10 years from now, we might look back over the last five or 10 or 15 years and think that the change that took place in law schools looks disruptive in retrospect? Because right now it looks like just a slow slog forward. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, my God, the law book can never be disrupted. It's just, you know, it's too, we, you know, everything plods along in the law. 
I have a lot of hope that when disruption happens, it's going to happen quickly. And I think there will be a turning point. And, I, you know, I've watched Uber and Lyft and how that's changed. If, you know, 10 years ago, who knew? Or before 2007, who would have thought of an iPhone? But when things hit, they hit really quickly. So somebody's going to crack this, the legal profession, and, and disrupting it. And I'm, I'm really hopeful it's within the next 10 years because I want to be part of it and, you know, be here at law school helping our students be ready for that. I want to be part of it, too. Alice, thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate the conversation. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for reaching out. Good to talk to you. Sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh, 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 o